All right, uh, we're home stretch here, and then I'm going to uh, just kind of call 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 it quits at ten till, at least in an official way. And then after that, if there are people who still want to talk, absolutely. Um, but we'll close with a prayer, and uh, at ten till we'll we'll conclude. I um, uh, just spoke with someone in the room, and she had a, a really poignant story to, sh- to share, and that was that um, she's part of a bridge group. And um, two women in the bridge group were uh, involved in an accident. And um, uh, one of the women uh, was injured in the group. The accident was not the fault of the other woman uh, who was driving. But the woman who was injured uh, has not forgiven uh, the person uh, who was driving in the accident and has even continued uh, to threaten to sue and hold it against her. And they're playing in the same bridge group. And, um, and the report was that, you know, bridge is just no, no fun anymore. And you can feel the tension and uh, hatred and even evil. And uh, yet this person has been told, you know, don't say anything. Um, you know, they'll all work it out. And so uh, what do you think? Should you say something? You find a different bridge group. Find a different bridge group. Walk away. Right? Is that a legitimate response? Uh, just walk away when you have a difference with your with your church? You know, I think that's a lot of people are asking that question. Sometimes it's the only way. But do you, do you say something first? Look, I am a, look, I'm a Christian woman. We're all Christians here at the heart of my faith uh, is the gospel, the forgiveness of sins. Um, uh, forgiveness is very much a, a part of how I understand we're supposed to imitate um, uh, Christ's example. And uh, unless I see some of that here, I'm out of here. Something like that, right? Um, I, I, you know, it just seems to me like that's a situation where, where at least a word is necessary, saying this, this is where, this is why Christ died, right? This, this is exactly why we have to uh, come to come together, speak the truth in love, yes, um, um, but also recognize that we might have something to own up to, and uh, we might have some behavior to amend. Um, so at least something has to be said, right? The, the words create things, and when there's no word, often things just fester. So um, I, I think saying a word there is absolutely appropriate. Also, the, the, the whole subject of... Oh, can, I, can I give him the mic real quick, Jim? The whole, the whole subject of, of the... Test, test, test. Yeah, it's on. Dead battery. I'll repeat your question. Well, the, the whole subject of, of the, the results of an accident, you know, this usually is a cascaded result of, of a tenth of a second kind of a uh, error in judgment or in, in um, misplaced bravado or whatever, but it's not, it's not evil. Right, the woman if caused ever, the, the, the woman wasn't even the cause of the accident. If you ever stumbled and fallen, right. yeah. you're right in this middle of the fall, and you wonder how did I get here? Yeah. Right, something else is going on here with the the, the bridge partner. Um, th- there's something else besides, you know, I was hurt in an accident that you did not cause, but I'm holding you responsible for. Something else is going on there. Go ahead. Yeah, Hans, can I raise a new subject? Sure. <clears throat> Depends um, on how new. I don't want to talk about, you know, the stimulus package or anything like that. I'm, I'm very much concerned over what's uh, happening regarding the Christian church and the Bible. And, um, and a very key element of it seems to be uh, this philosophy called progressive revelation and where... The scriptures, as we know them and as written, are not complete. And that, that uh, additional, that God is continuing to reveal new things, and that therefore, and that, that the old, what was written was applicable at the time, but things are changed. Can you talk a little bit ab- about that, that uh, the completeness of the Bible? Uh, and uh, and these thoughts of progressive revelation, I think it's. Do, is this sounds. Is this something you want to hear me say something about? Okay. Uh, do you, Do you know where this is coming from? It's coming from. What's that? No. It's, I mean, it's coming from some 
certain kinds of Protestant groups. It's, it's really a, a Mormon idea originally that uh, God's revelation. I think he's talking about something different. I think there was just recently I was watching the religion ethics on PBS and there was a, a talking to some people who were at this convention and for the Lutheran and they were talking about how um, social times have changed and so the Bible needs to be updated to the yeah. to where we are today. Not not that it's unfolded and we see different things at different times from the word. Yeah, I, I know there's some um, liberal corners of, of Christianity where this is coming from. Um, the idea that God is doing a new thing and the new thing might be saying that the old things uh, no longer apply. apply um, so, go ahead. Right here. Um, just another, it's kind of tied to that. I, my question was, uh, maybe you discussed this last night, I wasn't here, but the question of eisegesis, you know, as opposed to putting some of our own thoughts into what is actually on the printed word. We're talking about interpreting the Bible and saying, what does it say? What does yeah. it say? Does scripture interpret scripture? It seems to me that there are some ideas that are really, at least for me, it seems like they're really putting in some of their own meaning. And um, we, you know, we that do might this. lead to this, you know, for 2,000 yeah. years or whatever, 1,500 years yeah. we've we've uh, moved forward in this way. If somebody wants to say progressive revelation, okay. things are changing, well, then maybe they should go off and start their own new church rather yeah. than force it on ours. Okay, I'll just make a few comments. Um, the, uh, this is a whole new bag we're opening here. But we might, I might say a few things and then go back. But, but um, uh, we all do this. The way I understand um, hermeneutics and the way I understand the way humans read texts is that we bring our contexts to the text we're engaged with, and we impose some level of context on the context of the original text. That was a unnecessarily um, confusing way to say that. We we do all do eisegesis. That is, we read what in a way what 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 we are predisposed to see in in a text, um, and that is why um, you know just taking an example. Um, uh, because this came up in a class, uh, we were reading, I teach a th- class called Theology of Marriage and Family at Augsburg, and we were reading Jesus in Matthew 19, where he is teaching about um, marriage and divorce, and then he goes on at the end of that session of teaching to talk about eunuchs, people who are born eunuchs, people who are made eunuchs by, at the hands of men, and people are, who are eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God. There you go. You can only bring in, at the very beginning, you can only bring in your own prejudices and predispositions about a text like that. Probably first you're going to say, well, what exactly is a eunuch? Um, And then you're going to ask, what are these three different kinds of eunuchs? And then you're going to get mental pictures about it. You're not going to understand really what Jesus knew a eunuch was, and and you're not really going to understand how his original hearers uh, understood what a eunuch was unless you explain it to them. So that's exegesis. You, instead of re, um, reading in your own interpretation, you try to draw out the original context and interpretation of, of, the, uh, of the, the text. So it's this tension of reading into a text, but then also reading out of the text the original and intended meaning. Um, that's part of the job of interpretation. Sometimes, though, all we do is eisegesis, and we don't we don't try to understand the original context and we, or, or we ridicule the original context or we say, um, no, that, that's not a real context. So some, sometimes I think only all that we do is eisegesis. I will make this argument that the prosperity gospel cheap preachers do eisegesis mainly. And if you read a book like My Best Life Now by uh, Joel Osteen, very nice man, very nice smile, um, big church, um, but you read his books it is all eisegesis. That is, he has a, a gospel in mind, and he's going to pick and choose all the texts and fit them into his um, schema instead of trying to talk about what's the text in its original context. How does this text mean in the wider context of the gospel uh, presented in the New Testament? So that, that's the difference. You can, you can do only eisegesis and completely neglect uh, exegesis. Reading into the text versus reading out of the text. Um, so And so, um, to Jim's question, you have some Protestant commentators now, I'll name uh, one significant one, John Shelby Spong, who um, wants to say that the entire New Testament and the entire Bible is based on a worldview 
that no longer exists for most people. It's a pre-scientific worldview. It's a worldview where, where magic things happen. Um, nobody looks at the world this way. So we need to redefine the primary worldview of Christianity so that it's more in line with science, so it's more in line with sort of a human and humanitarian, um, humanistic, I mean, um, uh, view of the human race. You know, sin, salvation, all those things are outmoded. Uh, original sin, Adam and Eve, of course not. Uh, resurrection, life after. Spong wants to get rid of all of these things. Um, he happens to be an Episcopalian bishop, and no one's gotten around to uh, kicking him out yet. The African bishops are trying. But, um, you know, this, this would be maybe uh, what you're talking about, although Spong wouldn't necessarily talk about it in terms of um, uh, the, ter- the term you used. Um, which, which was your term? To some extent. Progressive revelation, thanks, yeah. What I'm thinking about... Spong doesn't think there is revelation. Is, what is I'm thinking about is that uh, Christ has taught us how to live. Yeah. And part of that is that we must develop a strong personal relationship with God. And how, does we, how do we do that? We do that by communication. Not just our prayers to him for give me this, give me that, help solve this problem, etc. But his own guidance, you know, uh, uh, to, to us. And, and, uh, and the basis for the, a lot of that communication is going into scripture. Now, so, and, and we're supposed to, when we hear from others, different views, false prophets, if you want to use that term, we're supposed to evaluate what they say mm-hmm. against what does it say in Scripture. Yeah. And if, I've, if I have taken Scripture now and begin the whole framework that says, well, yes, that was back then, that applied. It doesn't apply in the social environment of today. Mm-hmm. I don't have a foundation. I then have nothing to go to, that to upon which to make any kind right. of a significant decision regarding how we should live. So, so what's at stake, if I may? What's at stake is that you know, if if you see people doing this or groups doing this, saying here's what the Bible says clearly, and yet we have this new information from the social sciences or from you know any other corner, um, and therefore what the Bible is saying here no longer applies, or we can reject that and replace it with something else, you're saying that, you know, you do that with one thing, you can do that with everything. And, you know, like a house of cards, the whole thing falls. Um, so what you're saying is what's at stake is sort of the authority of the Bible itself, at least you're implying that, right? You can't just willy-nilly say the Bible is no longer the main authority for this subject, because what that implies is that maybe there are other subjects when we get some more information down the line for which the Bible will no longer be the main authority. So that's why this is meaningful to you and a lot of people, uh, this issue, because once you start relativizing the place of Scripture in terms of the hierarchy of authorities, in terms of how you make a decision about something, how you live a Christian life, how you understand Christ, um, the, the authority of the Bible seems to be uh, threatened. And right? it so seems to me that it's, uh, you know, I, it, he's not the only one. That, it's non-Lutheran, yeah. but it, it's uh, it, it's happening within the church itself, and is is a real falling away to me, in my mind, from God's plan uh, for us yeah. as a, as individuals and as a church. And I, th- I think we need to bite the bullet and, and, and face up. To I think that. we need to we need to teach the scriptures and first come to an agreement on the essentials, and that's kind of what's missing. At least that would be a good starting place: is to teach the Bible again, um, make it a priority. I know the ELCA is doing this with the Book of Faith Initiative. Do even more of that. You know, find out as Lutheran Christians what are we going to say is center, and there our confessions can help us. And now that we've had this agreement about I mean, this discussion about what's in Scripture and what's at the center, now that we have um, you know kind of a, a, an overarching view of of what the gospel of Christ means, what God is doing through the, ris- the crucified and risen Lord in the here and now, uh, then we can talk about some of these issues that might be dividing us. So I want to first say, yeah, I think your instinct is right. Let's get back to the to the book that's been the source and norm and, and authority all these years and kind of come to an agreement on the essentials. What is the gospel of Jesus? 
uh, how do we discern law and gospel um, for given texts and for everything? To get people at least not on the same page, but familiar with what is on the page. And then have uh, some of these other discussions. We teach in, um, at Augsburg College for our youth and family ministry major. We have our students take uh, Bible classes. We have our students take um, theology classes. We have them take ministry classes. Um, and we also, besides their general ed- education curriculum, but our ministry students, we also make them take three social sciences classes um, from psychology or sociology. So I think these other disciplines, right, not theology or Bible, but the sciences, can inform our discussions. In fact, they have to. I would make the argument that really to be a good youth director today, if you don't know some of the insights from um, childhood and adolescent development, you're not going to be very effective. So uh, we use the sciences to inform our theology and our understanding of the Bible. I always get nervous when the trump is played. Well, look at what science has showed us. And therefore, the Bible is no longer outmoded. Maybe we have to look at Scripture again and ask the Spirit, well, how do we, we, how do we understand the Scripture in light of this finding? But I would, I'm always a little bit nervous when someone says this is going to trump the word of Scripture. So I'm one of these Christians, like, like the Nicaeans, I mean, uh, like the, uh, the old Christians, right? When they got together, when Constantine got all the bishops together uh, to settle the matter about the relationship of the Son to the God the Father, Right? This is where we get our Nicene Creed from. Uh, when they brought all those bishops together from around the Mediterranean world, um, they did not pray for the Spirit to reveal to them some new insight or truth. They piled up all the documents that the churches were using. Some of them, most of them are in our, our New Testament now. Some of them are not. But they piled up all the documents that the churches were using, the Gospels, Paul's letters, um, not Revelation, interestingly, um, but they, they piled up these, these uh, writings from the New Testament period, and they said, well, which ones are we going to consider primary? And then they read those documents under the, under, after praying for the Holy Spirit. So the idea is, uh, God, show us something new because we don't like what's in the books. You know, from the very beginning, Christians said, God, show us what the books say, right? You're going to speak something to us out of the book. Um, um, show us what that is, right? We're not going to say the book's not valid anymore. So that would be always my approach, right? For better or worse, I think for better. Um, we Christians have this thing called the New Testament. It took a little while uh, to compile, but this is a gift to us from the Spirit so that we can have a source and norm that's written. And through that text or those, you know, those gospels and those letters, um, the Spirit can speak the truth for us in the present in the present day. This is exactly what Bonhoeffer did, right? He didn't pray to God, uh, Lord, give me a new revelation about what to do uh, in in this very unique situation where you have a Christian nation uh, performing these ghastly deeds uh, um, on its own citizens in the world. Um, reveal something new to me. Bonhoeffer searched the scriptures uh, for a difficult word, and he got the word, and it cost him his life. Um, but he didn't say, you know, I can't see clearly in the scripture how the whole Hitler thing applies here. So I need some new revelation. We've always gone back to that source and said, God, speak to us now out of this source, not out of social sciences. Right. Bonhoeffer, um, you know, he knew psychology. He'd read Freud. But in the end, Freud could not give him what he needed to navigate through uh, the atrocities of the Third Reich. For him, in the end, psychology could contribute some insights but only went so far. Where he found his direction was in the scripture. So I would say social sciences can help us, but once someone says this is going to trump scripture, then we've got to back up a little bit. I mean, she, she's had her hand up first, and then, and then Lavinia. Is that on? And on this is that this progressive revelation stuff is just a, another device and trick to throw out the word of God because the evil one does not want us to know truth and follow God's word. And we need to just stand and stand on what's already been written because everything has already been revealed on how we are to live and what God wants us to be. It's already been revealed. There is no other revelation uh, being revealed. That's just a, a trick, I feel. Um, 
And so we need to stand and say, no, Scripture is true. And, and as far as new revelations, those kind of things apply to personally. Let's say you have an issue in your life and you're not sure what to do. You can ask God to reveal what should I do. You search scriptures to find out what the Word of God says about your situation or what you are encountering in the world. And then you use the scriptures and then you pray, God, reveal to me what I should do. Now, that's new revelation when it's an issue. But as far as living and sin and purity and how God wants us to be and live, that's already been revealed to us. And um, we, we say that, that the, the second one, the second, I want to answer your other question. You, you mentioned twice the eunuch. Um, that's not wasn't anything new because in the Old Testament, there were eunuchs. Many of the prophets were eunuchs. They were celibate. Yeah, but see, like, you, like the, nice, the, the Nazarene. Yeah, I don't want to get on the eunuch thing. I was just using it as an illustration. There, there is a whole background about these, like you're starting yeah. into right now. Yeah, okay. Um, I don't think we need to get into that. But that's the idea. If you don't know the background, you can read into that passage whatever you want. Yeah. So knowing the background is important. I, I, um, uh, I think... This is what I'm saying, right? The, that the word is still primary for us Christians as we try to uh, understand what God is saying us in the here and now about what we should uh, believe and how we should act. And the word has plenty to say to us still. Um, so I, I'm always, uh, I react when someone says, oh, the Bible doesn't have anything to say to this. I think it does. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I have a, a friend at uh, St. Timothy's who's a Sunday school teacher, and he's teaching uh, some very young kids, including his two little daughters. And uh, he's, for quite a while, he was extremely concerned about uh, the creation story in Genesis. And since we have uh, some fairly clear evidence about something other than mm-hmm. just what's shown there, uh, dinosaurs and all that. Uh, he was just about to the point of saying, if if the Bible isn't true all the way through, and it wasn't seven days, uh, I'm not going to do this. And you see, this this is this is where uh, it's not really revisionism. It's observing what the purpose of the whole book was about. It has nothing to do with science mm-hmm. or how the function was done, how creation was done, how people were created. It is the fact that God did it. Mm-hmm. And that's how the story was written for the people of yeah, the these, and These are real uh, present concerns. And you know that's why as a teacher, when I'm in a, in a classroom setting, um, you know, when students make certain statements, I usually go after them in a very gentle way. You know, sometimes, you know, uh, if, if, if someone just says, well, the Bible is true, isn't it? Or the Bible is God's revealed word. You know, I will press the question a little bit. I say, well, I want to say that too as a Christian, but how is it true? Your idea of how it's true it might be different than my idea. Your idea of what God reveals in the scripture might be different than my idea or the group I belong to, their idea. Um, uh, and these discussions about which label we're going to put on, on Scripture. Is it inerrant? You know, I like to say, uh, well, the Scripture may be inerrant, but your interpretation probably is not inerrant. Um, certainly my interpretation of Scripture is not inerrant. Um, the way I read Scripture, especially by myself, uh, is usually filled with errors, and that's why it's very important for, and this is how we've always done it uh, as Christians, ideally, is to read the, the, the text that we've been given in... Um, in community, so that through the discernment of the community, God's word through that scripture can be revealed to us. We are not, we are not Muslims. We do not believe that the Arabic revelation of the Quran uh, to Muhammad in the seventh century um, is God's word in the same way that we believe uh, that we understand the written words in our scripture is God's word for Christians. We have to remember that there was not a New Testament for uh, many decades, if not a, a couple of hundred years. Uh, so for Christians, there's another word of God above the written word of God. And above that word of God, there's another word of God, right? For Christians, uh, the scripture is the word of God 
But if you want to create a hierarchy, it's in third place. I hate to say it, but it's true. It's very, very important, but you cannot have the scripture as word of God if you don't have right above that uh, the spoken word about Jesus Christ as the word of God. So the preached spoken word is sort of uh, the, the word of God you have to have before you have the, the, the written word. If people did not tell the story of Jesus of Nazareth, if people did not tell the story of how the risen Christ appeared to them and how they experienced him, you would never have a written word. What you first had was simply people telling the story of Jesus Christ. And because of that, you have the written word. Now, if you didn't have the word of God made flesh, Jesus Christ, then you wouldn't have people telling the story about Jesus Christ and you wouldn't have a written word. So for Christians, primarily the word of God is Jesus Christ himself, not the text. Uh, Then secondarily, it's us Christians telling each other who Christ is, what he did, what his benefits are, right? Making Christ alive, bearing Christ to one another verbally. That's the idea and that's why the church spread, not because they had a New Testament. They didn't have a New Testament at the beginning. They had a Lord crucified and risen and they had people who were willing to tell about that Lord and go to the ends of the earth, tell about that earth. Finally, thank goodness, uh, the Spirit brought about our written word so that we could have, even this late in the game, uh, original accounts and original teachings about what those earlier followers were doing and saying about Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. So we have these three words and, and we dare not uh, separate them or think of them uh, in, in a way that, that uh, Christians ought not uh, think about them. So we have the written word to inform even now how we talk about Jesus and how we understand Jesus' benefits for us and what he does for us now. We have this written word so we can uh, deliberate um, uh, and discern what the Spirit is doing uh, in our midst now against the experience or in the context of the experience of those early believers. Right? That, that, is, that is the idea of having a written word. It's not like the Koran where that word itself is what, you know, is God's presence. Okay, that the text is not God's presence. It's the spirit of Christ um, coming through what that text says, speaking to us now. That's how God is present through the text. So it's important to make, to make those distinctions. I mean, that's, I think, a pretty high view of scripture. Um, maybe not the highest, but, you know, I think that's a very Lutheran view and a very um, Orthodox Catholic, Catholic view as well. That's how we've always understood uh, how the scripture is God's word. So it's, I hope that was helpful. It's very important to know that. And that's why, you know, even here, 2,000 years later, despite all the scientific advances, we can still look at Genesis 1 and say, this is God's word in light of a science that says the universe is 8 billion years. How are we to interpret this now? Well, some people still want to insist 24-hour days. That's okay, too. Uh, but other people want to say, well, maybe we can understand some of this in a more metaphorical sense. And there's people going to argue with you about that. But at least you're still saying that original story still has something to say to me. Like you were saying, God created it. God put humans um, at the crown of creation so that they could take care of the earth, right? There's still plenty of truth to be had at that story, even if you're willing to sacrifice 24-hour days. Um, So I think that's what you're getting at, right? Just because social science is my challenge, what your preconceptions of the word where it doesn't mean the word still can't somehow be true in another way. So when students say, um, you know, the Bible is literally true, I always say, well, when Jesus asked you to pluck your eyes out, um, <laughs> you know, you know, I mentioned origin. He, he uh, castrated himself because he took that particular teaching very literally. Um, uh, there are some things that we just have to say uh, are metaphorical. I think revelation is clearly metaphorical language. But it's describing a reality, a future reality, and that is Christ's conquest um, of all the forces of evil, ending with death and a new life and a new heaven and a new creation, a new earth. I think those are real and true and literal, but Revelation uses very metaphorical language, figurative language, to describe that reality. So I think, is the Bible literally true? You have to ask the next question. Pick a verse. Pick a passage. Let's talk about how this is true. What's literal? What's figurative? What's negotiable between those two, right? 
I think that's that's how to do it. So these kind of absolutes, um, you know, trying to insist on one or the other, it it's really doesn't get us very far in the end. What where where we get far is let's look at a text and let's maybe even pray together and agree together that the Spirit of Christ is active to reveal what he wants to say to us through this text now and then see what comes out as we talk about and read and talk about this text. I think that's more interesting than saying the Bible is true or the Bible is not true. The Bible is literal. The Bible is not literal. I think those just divide. If we can get on the page and read the text and ask for the Spirit to show us together what God wants us to know, I think we're going to get a lot further. still going to be messy. still going to be disagreements. But at least to me that seems more Christian. So, there. I think I... I think I said everything I have to say on that subject. So now how do you talk to someone possibly in your family that is an atheist? And as they were growing up, you thought that they were Christian. Yeah, I have one of these in my family. Um, There's some folks over here who know this. My dad now, who taught me the faith, knows more about the Bible than um, most lay folk I know, uh, with the exception of Jim here. uh, you know, had a crisis of faith. Gee whiz, 24 years, I mean, a long time ago now, more than 20 years. And, and he's, he's a deist, effectively. That means he believes there's a God out there who kind of wound up the universe, but really not much interested in what's going down here on this little blue planet um, on the edges of the Milky Way galaxy, right? So he's a deist, but the, the whole Jesus, Son of God, um, you know, forgiver of sins, redeemer of the world, you know, he's not there anymore and, and describes himself as an agnostic in terms of Jesus or at least someone who doesn't believe. He just doesn't know um, anymore and not willing to confess Christ as Savior. So I know what this is like. Um, what are you going to do? We're searching for Oh, you are? Okay. <laughs> Right, but this is this is kind of where this where this hits home for everybody, right? We might have our disagreements with different Christians about issues. Um, we belong to one group, and they belong to another group, and those conversations are important. But in the end, we have this great commission, and that I think is still always you know our primary job. Uh, there's a Lord that we have. Uh, there's a Lord that we know. Uh, there's a Lord who's ready to give himself again and again, not just to me, but to any other of, of uh, new folks I can, I can include in the circle. And so, you know, what about our, uh, what is our missionary call in our families, uh, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in our nation, and in our, in our world? I think that's really a primary question to ask all the time for Christians. God, what are you calling me to do as, uh, uh, as a worker in your kingdom? And sometimes you get these really hard questions. God, how am I supposed to be a bearer of your son to my dad or to this family member uh, who no longer believes? That's, I, I think you know what I'm going to say, but what do you think I'm going to say? What's, the first, what's your first job? Pray. Pray. Yeah. And what's your second job? Bring it. Love. Right? You, you come out. How many of you have tried to be preachy with a family member? It doesn't work, right? You know, my sister, um, who I've been preaching to before, you know, she, she, I don't do it anymore because she's my sister and she, she calls me on it quickly and it, does, it doesn't work. So you pray and you love and again, you trust the same spirit that has created faith in you is not going to give up on this loved one. And um, one way or the other, the word is going to land once again. So that's something I pray for, for my dad and for others. Tried to, what we have tried to do is um, show her what it is like to be a Christian. When she threw that on us with the evolution and all that, it was I was, my mouth dropped open. But I thought, you know what? God wants me to be a Christian, and I just we keep praying for yeah. her. We keep telling her that we're praying for her. And yeah, God bless you for that. These are hard things, you know. We we. Um, when, when I talk with my students, you know, Jesus uh, says, take up your cross and follow me. You know, it sounds kind of harsh. And people say, well, gosh, you know, who would follow a religion that says you've got to pick up a cross? And yet we have these crosses and we're, we're asked to carry them. And we do it in a way gladly and with love and with hope. Um, we don't do it unwillingly. You know, these are crosses that, 
that we bear on behalf of our loved ones. And um, um, that's what vocation is all about, including the vocation to, to be Christ to each other. So, uh, yeah, you're on the, I, think, I think you're on the right track. But um, these are hard things. Other, other questions? I'm going to maybe... We didn't talk, we didn't, I didn't get to uh, kind of finish up what I wanted to say about what does the Bible say about how we uh, should get along um, with people who interpret the Bible differently than us. Um, sometimes that's easy to do because you don't think the difference is that great. So you can go back and forth about the Lord's Supper and it really doesn't matter. There's nothing at stake in your discussion. But sometimes, and I've seen this now in the recent discussion about, I saw it first with ordination and the concordat um, and the call to common mission, that there was really something at stake, that there was raw emotion and viscera in the arguments. And now, of course, with um, ordination of gay and lesbian clergy, you know, there's something at stake, and that's why this is the, the issue that's being grappled with. Um, how do we continue with people we don't see eye to eye with and where there's um, emotions like anger and hatred that accompany the disagreement? And the scripture has a lot to say about it. And we mentioned some of those words. And uh, I would like to, suggest, like to suggest that it's not as easy as saying, I disagree with them, therefore I have to break fellowship with them. There is a point where people, I think, do get led to that point. But it is not the first place to start, nor the second place, nor the third place, nor the fourth place you go. Maybe on the list it's 9 or 10 or 11 down. Um, where you find you have to break some kind of fellowship, whether I can't commune with you anymore or we can't have your group part of this group. Um, there is room for that in the New Testament. The New Testament is not naive, and there's nothing in the New Testament that says we, we will just tolerate every single opinion about every single interpretation. We're one big happy. It's, 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 it's not there. The only thing that's there is Christ crucified. That's the one non-negotiable, right? Um, and then when Paul says a little bit later in First uh, Corinthians, um, not just Christ crucified, but also Christ raised from the dead. Those are the non-negotiables, the essentials. Um, if you don't have those, then we have no basis for um, uh, fellowship, table fellowship especially. So there are some essentials that, we are, that are central. And then outside of that, there are some other essentials. Uh, the Lutheran Confessions will talk about what some of those essentials are, especially the doctrine of justification by grace through faith apart from the works of the law. You try and combine faith and works, and you have a program that the Lutherans are going to reject and therefore say, we can't, we're not with you on that one. Uh, but then the Lutherans also have this category of adiaphora. How many of you have heard this category? It's a Latin word which means non-essentials. That it is possible that Christians can have complete fellowship but disagree on some non-essentials. The problem with Adiaphora is one person's non-essential can be another person's essential. So the Lutheran confessions try to give some guidelines about what the essentials are, but your Baptist friends will have a different set of essentials. Your Pentecostal friends will have a different set of essentials. Um, but nevertheless, we do have this category of non-essentials as Adiaphora. Um, is it okay that uh, here at Bethel uh, Lutheran they commune in the round rather than in right angles? That would be a non-essential, right? There are lots of non-essentials that we can differ on and accept and welcome. Um, but then there are some essentials that we cannot broach difference in. Uh, what are those? Lutherans have some. I would say the non-essentials for Christians uh, are Jesus Christ crucified and raised. And I'm, I'm going to throw in my hat with the Council of Nicaea that uh, the man Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified and raised is also the creator of heaven and earth. I'll, I'll start right there. And then, and then we can go out from there. There's one more question, I think, over there. I'm not sure how this question still fits. but um, In terms of talking about how different people interpret the Bible and how we try to live in community with those different interpretations, I'm reminded of one of how it was explained to me how to identify a heresy. Oh, yeah, good. And it was... Any attempt to put something else either in place of or above the Bible, and, and uh, that was one way to identify a heresy. If you identify, if somebody said this trumps Bible or this replaces Bible or this um, substitutes for Bible, mm -hmm. 
that is when we have heresy, and, and that's one place to draw the line between when we strive to work out the community, whether it's Adiaphora or um, more serious than that. There are times when we can rec- I can recognize somebody as being Christian yeah. who, with whom I either agree or disagree. And I will have varying levels of community with that person <laughs> based on right. what type of disagreement it is. But there's a certain point at which I recognize heresy yep. and where I don't see a Christian community there. And that is the point at which I would say I separate. Interesting that you mentioned this. The word heresy predates the New Testament. And the word heresy, um, in terms of our, our Christian tradition, uh, really is sort of, I mentioned him earlier, uh, this, this cat named Irenaeus, uh, who wrote a, a very thick document around 165, 170 AD called Against the Heresies. Now, that's what it sounds like in English. Um, uh, the, the original Greek, though, uh, the word heresy uh, really implies uh, those who ha- have taken another direction. You could say against the alternatives. So, uh, so Irenaeus is writing against the alternatives. What are the alternatives in the second century? If you, those of you who know your history. What, what are the alternatives? Uh, what, what, what Irenaeus, he, he, in the same document, he says, here are the four Gospels. And these have been the four accounts of Jesus' life that have been the standard um, almost from the very beginning. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Okay? What are the alternatives in the second century? The Gnostic You've got these other Gospels. You have these later writings from, uh, you know, the best way to describe them is a kind of Christian mystic that took uh, some Greek philo- philosophical categories and combined them with Christianity and produced these uh, new writings about the life of Jesus called Gnostic Gospels. So these are alternative Gospels. And, and um, Irenaeus is writing against these who have these alternative Gospels and are, are preaching what he sees as an alternative version of Jesus Christ. Now, if you read the Gnostic Gospels, because we've got plenty of them today, uh, you know, the Gospel of Judas is one that made headlines a couple years ago. It's very clear that this kind of literature is completely different than Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have in common uh, the story of the life of Jesus, including his works, uh, accounts of his teachings. All of them end with very detailed descriptions of the last week of his life. In fact, if you put all the chapters of the New Testament together, one-third of those chapters have to do with describing events of the last week of Jesus' life. So at the heart of the four Gospels, which Irenaeus and just about everyone else recognizes as the earliest and original, um, at the heart of that is the story of the crucified Jesus, the the would-be Messiah going up to Jerusalem and getting himself killed and and coronated not with a golden crown, but a crown of thorns, and not on a big fancy throne on the seat of David, but, but um, you know, enthroned on a cross, crucified as the king of the Jews, right? This is the story, the central part of the story that the four Gospels are concerned with. And then, of course, uh, the resurrection on the third day. What are the Gnostic Gospels concerned with? Not that. They're concerned with all kinds of things, including how it really wasn't Jesus that was crucified, if they even get around to talking about a crucifixion. So clearly, whatever else you want to say about the Gnostic Gospels, they're completely different than the four original ones. And Irenaeus is saying, these are alternatives. I'm writing against the alternatives. That's the idea of a heresy. And then later on, you've got some additional development. You know, people wanting to say, well, Jesus seems to be a created being. He's not really one with the Father. And that, that gets labeled as an alternative. And at the Council of Nicaea, the consensus is, it's not a unanimous consensus, but almost, uh, the consensus is that, no, Jesus, uh, and the, uh, Jesus the Son and the Father are one. Um, and the alternative view is considered the heresy, is, is labeled the heresy. Um, so that, that's the idea of a, her- of a heresy, right? It's, a, it's an alternative, and most people who... Um, are going to label something as heretical, are going to say this is a, part of what makes this an alternative is it's not the original version. It's a kind of a Johnny-come-lately. And just for that reason, we reject the alternative because it's second. Um, but, and there are other reasons to, to reject the alternative also. So that's the idea of heresy. Now, which heresies um, are you going to stomach? You know, uh, which later inventions are you going to stomach and which, which one's not? Um, I think... You know, I think, again, like I said, there are some essentials 
I think there's just some essentials that uh, we have to insist on as Christians. You know, as much as I like uh, my, my old friend Ken Jensen, who's now a Mormon bishop, I, I just can't say that he's a Christian. He wants to tell me he's a Christian. In fact, he's the, in fact he wants to tell me that I'm not the Christian. Um, uh, this, this, is how, this is how this works. But I think I can make an argument that uh, his position represents the alternative and therefore the so-called heretical view. But the problem is with heresy, it's, it's such a loaded term and, and, and um, you know, I even heard it floated around you know, with the votes in, in August. I just, I, um, because it's so loaded, I think we just have to be very, very careful with the way we use the, the term heresy in, in public discussion. I think once you determine that you can't have agreement because somebody else has an alternative view you can't stomach, then maybe you can say, I, in my eyes, this is heresy. Understanding that basically you're just rejecting an alternative point of view. Um, so, yeah, Vinia. Perhaps since it's 3 o'clock, I could remind us of the explanation to the Eighth Commandment. Oh, we were going to, I just was talking about that. What a great okay, way to well, end. Go ahead. What a great way to end. Why don't you read it and then we'll, we'll say a prayer and then... Those who want to stay, we can stay. Because so much of what we're talking about here has to do with how we treat one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I raised my hand like a half an hour ago, part of what I was <laughs> going to say is, you know, how do, in terms of how we read Scripture, instead of trying to figure out how to fit science into it or how to fit Scripture into our scientific view, that we're asking the wrong question. And the, the question really is, is what, how is God speaking to us? What is God have to say and um and and what does this scripture have to say to us about who god is and what god is calling us to do and to be and maybe those are different questions so anyway as we're thinking about how to wrestle with these conversations and and how to treat one another um the eighth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor and luther says What does this mean? We are to fear and love God, so we do not tell lies about our neighbors, betray or slander them, or destroy their reputations. And this, I think, is the critical part. Do you keep reading? Yeah, okay, good. I'm not done. (laughs) Instead, we are to come to their defense, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. I have to continually remind myself to... Come to their defense, speak well of them, and interpret everything they do in the best possible light. And I think that's our challenge, no matter where we are on what issue. Very, very well said. Um, and Luther was asked one time, you know, given what you wrote there in the small catechism about, um, you know, understanding your neighbor's words and deeds in the best possible light, or the way I learned it, putting a generous, kind and generous construction are your neighbor's words and deeds. How can you say the things you do about the Anabaptists, about the Pope, about so forth? And uh, um, the, the report is that he responded, that is the kindest and generous construction. <laughs> 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 All right. You're going to say something, Jimmy? Well, I, it's been an inspirational four study periods. And, and uh, Hans, we really want to thank you for the insights that you've given to us, the responsiveness to our questions, and uh, we've learned a lot. Oh, good. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. And we really much. thank you. For coming. <laughs> and so with that, um, I would like to close uh, our meeting. Oh, I also want to thank Bethel once again for hosting this. And I particularly want to thank each one of you. And frankly, it's for coming. It's a real chore, you know, ahead of time trying to get the word out and, uh, and get some response back as who's going to come. Uh, LBI, frankly, has uh, uh, taken a real downturn in terms of income from, from uh, churches that are, and donors. Uh, in response to the economic environment. And uh, they really need to have you come to these things if we're going to continue to bring speakers like like Hans and others that we've had from all over to benefit and to supplement what 
your pastors are already teaching you in the way of Bible studies. You don't often get a chance to sit down and listen and study under somebody like Dr. Wiersma. And so LBI really enjoys this opportunity, but we need your support and need you to bring somebody else if we're going to be able to continue. The next one will be held at St. Timothy uh, in middle of March, uh, and uh, where we've got Dr. Craig Kessler already committed to come out from Luther Seminary. Uh, we've had numerous requests uh, for him, and I've always gotten a no that he's too busy. Uh, but um, Dr. Uh, uh, Bankstead from over there uh, at, said, I'll get him. And so he, <laughs> he has uh, got a commitment from him to come out uh, next March. So we look forward to having you there. So let's close. Jim, hey, Jim. Uh, can I can I offer the prayer? Can I? Uh, yeah, that would be wonderful. Can I have the conceit? Um, and by the way, Craig Kester, um, definitely call your friends. He he is great. One of the best teachers of the New Testament you will ever hear. Your eyes will definitely be open. Um, so he's top notch. And he's sure. going to talk on the subject of John. Oh, good. The book yeah. of John. Yeah, that's his specialty. Yeah. Good. Uh, I invite you to stand and. Um, if you would, uh, just sort of face in rather than face me. Just, just face across your, turn your, your face across the aisle. And I'm going to pray uh, just a prayer based on the small catechism, uh, the explanation to the second article, and then we'll close with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, you have given us a Lord, Jesus Christ, and we give you thanks that through him you have redeemed us, lost and condemned creatures that through him you have purchased and freed us from all sin, from death, and from the power of the devil. We give you thanks that you have done this through your Son, not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. Gracious God, help us always to remember that our Lord Jesus Christ has done all of this in order that we may belong to him, live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in eternal righteousness innocence and blessedness just as he has risen from the dead and lives and rules eternally hear us now lord as we pray the prayer your son taught us our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.